welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zachary Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And joining us today is Nick Chassett from East Bay Community Energy. And we're going to be talking about virtual power plants, grid resiliency in the midst of heat waves in California and other issues, and a bit about solar net metering in California. Uh, but to start, Nick, can you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you got into your role at East Bay Community Energy? Well, thank you for the invitation to be here today, Zach. I really appreciate the chance to share some perspectives on these topics. I'm the CEO of East Bay Community Energy. We are a community choice energy agency that operates out of the East Bay of Northern California, where we serve 1.7 million customers with clean, affordable electricity. I am the founding CEO of East Bay, and I've been here for five and a half years. Prior to my time at East Bay, though, I worked for Governor Jerry Brown as an energy advisor and as the chief of staff to the president of the California Public Utilities Commission. That's quite a quite a range of roles you've been in, quite a useful background to be uh, what you're doing doing now, especially, you know, sort of leading the way on virtual virtual power plants and grid resiliency. So can you speak a little bit about yeah, wh- why East Bay Community Energy was started and how how you got the idea to do that and how you got to scale that's quite a quite a big scale already after just five and a half years over 1 million customers how you got to scale so quickly yeah absolutely community choice energy agencies were formed out of the 2000 2001 energy crisis when pg&e had their first bankruptcy one of the responses that the california legislature decided made sense was to empower local governments to form alternative electricity suppliers to ensure that there would always be a solvent operator of electricity generation, while also empowering local governments that wanted to move faster on clean energy to do so. East Bay Community Energy started through work amongst quite a few local government officials and community activists. And in 2017, they hired me to launch the agency. Our goals have always been to at once deliver more renewable and more clean energy, while also finding ways to reinvest in local clean energy in the communities that we serve. As that happens, it makes the most sense for us to find ways to leverage the significant amount of rooftop solar that has been installed to create virtual power plants to enhance both the reliability of the grid, the reliability of the consumer, and provide more clean energy. And so that was a real reason why we've gone down this path so significantly. Yeah, we've, we covered that, that uh, movement quite, quite a lot, the community uh, energy, community utility sort of response to that crisis. We published a lot from John Farrell from Institute for Local Self-Reliance on that topic over the years. Can you say... I mean, California in general has a lot of rooftop solar. It's a it's a leading solar state. But can you say if East Bay Community Energy has higher than normal, or is it about the just California average for rooftop solar and and 
residential storage? I would say in general, we probably have a higher relative level of rooftop solar than most of the other parts of California. Uh, we also have a higher relative level of electric vehicles. I think it's a testament to the fact that the communities where we operate, places like Oakland and Berkeley and Fremont, tend to have consumers who are focused on investing in clean energy technology. We also do have quite a bit of battery installations because many of the communities we serve have been subject to public safety power shutoffs due to the threat of wildfire. So you basically, was this the first virtual power plant, like a big, big, uh, basically response that you've had recently in response to the, to the heat waves and the grid, grid challenges, or have you been doing this for a few years now? So we launched our virtual power plant project about two years ago in partnership with Sunrun. We actually led this effort and included a number of other community choice energy agencies as well across the Bay Area. But over the last two years, we've really been focused on recruiting customers into the virtual power plant project. So from when you launch, we actually need to then go and install these projects. Part of our challenge over the last two years has been delays related to COVID that have stalled some of the progress to install more of these solar and battery systems. So yes, this summer was the first time we were able to actually dispatch the virtual power plant project at scale. In our case, we were able to dispatch over 850 homes who have solar with batteries to support the grid during the heat wave. As we scale up this program, we hope to have north of 1,500 customers participating in our virtual power plant by next year. So what's the actual communication chain there? Who comes to you and says, hey, we need this? And, and then how do you then, and who deals with that in your, in your company? Then how do you then relate that to the customer? We've tried to design this program in a way that is as seamless as possible for the customer. One of our key learnings over the last two years is that customers don't want to have to think about these things significantly time in and time out. So the goal initially has been to recruit customers into the program in partnership with Sunrun. And the value proposition to the customer is they're getting their solar and battery system at a discount to what they would normally get it from Sunrun or any other company. That discount comes in the form of an incentive from East Bay Community Energy. In return for that incentive, they agree ahead of time to allow their battery to be discharged onto the grid under a specific set of circumstances. Generally, the circumstances that we focus on are ensuring that the battery discharges during that critical four to nine period instead of earlier or later uh, when it doesn't have as much grid responsiveness. So when we looked at the heat event that we just experienced, we had these customers already signed up the automation was built in between Sunrun and their batteries. So they didn't have to do anything themselves. It was already set up. We had communication with Sunrun telling them to test this system and then to be ready to discharge these batteries during the heat wave, which they were able to do. So in that way, it was a pretty simple and seamless process once we got to the operating phase. And is there anyone there like at the state level or, or other grid operators, grid connections that you're 
communicating with about making these decisions or is it just you're the top of the chain there and you're you're making a decision we're, we're going to need this so let's get in touch with sunrun and implement in this particular instance i did have communications with our grid operator and state regulators about the need to do everything we possibly could to support the grid but the communications with sunrun were directly between myself and sunrun's executives to ensure that this system would be up and running in time for the heat event our contract with Sunrun actually officially starts at the beginning of 2023. That is when they are contractually obligated to begin delivering the virtual power plant. But given the emergency circumstances we faced, we both felt that it made a lot of sense for us to see if we could get the system and product. We both felt that it made a lot of sense for us to try to launch our virtual power plant early. That makes sense. Well. You know, you know, there's other other virtual power plants going on, and there's other other people involved, other companies involved. But I mean, when we started covering this recently, you know, Sunrun was seemed like in every story, and they, they've been involved in different places in California. What's your experience? How's it been working with Sunrun on this? And I'm sure you know, it's, as you said, you launched early, even so, there must be some some bugs and some some wrinkles to to work out. Yeah, so could you talk about anything you learned also in this process that, that will help you in the future? I would say our, the biggest learnings that we have taken from this project with Sunrun are the challenges associated with integrating virtual power plant functionalities into solar company sales processes. Solar companies like Sunrun have built very efficient customer acquisition engines and they have you know, successfully deployed well over a million individual rooftop solar systems in California, but their processes and systems were built with limited control of the batteries or the inverters in mind. And we have identified at times some friction within their internal customer acquisition and sales systems that have made it perhaps not as efficient as we would like or not as seamless as we would like to go from Sunrun salesperson having a conversation with the customer, the customer signing up for solar, that customer being automatically enrolled in our virtual power plant program, and then them being able to participate. I hope that we've learned a lot though about reducing those frictions. And ideally we move to an opt out mechanism where every solar system with a battery that is sold in the East Bay community energy area is automatically enrolled into the virtual power plant. That customer gets the benefit upfront of a lower cost of their battery. And then East Bay can count on those batteries providing reliability over time. Now, what I will also say, and one of the key learnings we've taken away from these interactions is there's really very little impact on the customer economics of providing grid services because time of use rates for net metered customers are highest during the four to nine period. Discharging the battery during that period is actually in their economic benefit as well. So, it's really been more about aligning the systems to streamline the process of getting customers in. But my hope is that that's something we have figured out and we're gonna be able to scale customer acquisition much more quickly going forward. 
yeah so i mean well that's all useful stuff but it sounds like just implementing the implementing it in the past month was was as smooth as you could really hope for so that sounds great as a leader in energy storage technologies Vartzilla energy storage and optimization's mission is to make storage a fundamental part of a cleaner more intelligent and distributed energy infrastructure we are a passionate team tackling exciting challenges in the energy industry as we transition the power grid to a 100% renewables future. Our technologies and solutions are a critical components supporting utilities, renewables developers, independent power producers, and many more energy asset owners in their decarbonization journeys. As Vertilla Energy Storage continues to grow, we are always on the lookout for future-oriented talent, talent that shares our passion for the energy transition. Want to join us as we scale up? Please visit storage.vartzilla.com forward slash careers to learn more today. Let's just dive into the the numbers a little bit. So I'll let you talk about them. I've got some of them here in front of me, but but you know the current current system capacity output, number of units, and also you know what you're forecasting in the next few years or even out to 2030 if you have that. So our program with Sunrun is targeting 1,000 to 1,500 single-family homes and eventually 500 to 1,000 multifamily dwellings, so larger systems in apartment buildings. And that system will be operational in 2023 and will be operating for 10-year period, providing reliability to East Bay Community Energy and then all of the benefits of rooftop solar and storage to the customer as well. Generally speaking, the system will be operating from that four to nine period uh, because that's when the prices are highest and the reliability needs are most acute. And, you know, I, I don't see any mention of this, but, you know, there's a lot of electric vehicle adoption in California. This was a bit of a story at this time, too. There's a lot of potential potential there as well as you know just different scenarios different different things to consider was there anything related to what you do and what you were doing here that's related to electric vehicles and ev charging yeah we are doing two specific projects related to electric vehicle charging at the moment first we have just launched a project with a company to recruit electric vehicle drivers into managed charging so this is an initiative where we will sign a customer up, they will receive an upfront incentive, and in return for that, they agree to allow EBC and our partner to manage their charging during a predefined period. So say from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., they say, we, I need to be 100% charged by 6 a.m., but I will let you control the charge and the stop charge and the charge and the stop charge signals from that 9 to 6 a.m. period. We're doing this to be able to better understand are there cost savings that we can identify for EBC and the customer from being able to control charging with pretty great amount of detail. We also want to compare this very customer-specific, customer-by-customer charging behavior to the general charging behaviors of customers who are on time of use rates. Today, most customers still do charge after 9 p.m. on their own because of the economic signal. Rates are much cheaper then. And so what we want to understand is 
do we really need to recruit customers into a program where they download an app and they have to go through a whole enrollment process? Or can we just provide economic signals through rates to achieve the goal of pushing customers to charge during the grid optimal time? So that is the primary thing we've done. We are also in the process of developing a network of fast chargers across our service territory. We have sites that we've already agreed to and are in the development process in Oakland, California, and Livermore, California, and Piedmont, California. And our intention is to build another five to 10 fast charger hubs. These would be structured very much like Tesla supercharger stations with 20 or more chargers at a publicly 24-7 available location. Thanks, and so any, any coffee uh, coffee or this is honest, honest i've had a tesla for a few years and one of the things i know a lot of tesla owners wish i mean of course they're often located next to a wawa or a whole foods or something but there's also kind of like there's so much potential there to have nice little you know places to relax hang out get a coffee get some uh, get, a, get a sandwich or something uh, do you have and and there's been a sort of big movement in the UK with some uh, some companies there to to start launching more of these more elaborate stations. Are you considering that at all, or are you just focus on the chargers and locating them in good locations for now? So we have not focused yet on building, say, a coffee station or specific developments at the charger hubs themselves. We've been focusing on developing sites that are adjacent to coffee, other amenities. So what we've really focused on there is partnering with local governments to find parking lots and garages that they own that are often close to their central business districts so that an electric vehicle driver can pull up, plug their car in, and within 500 feet or so, be able to walk to a coffee shop, walk to a grocery store, walk to other amenities that they can use for 30, 45 minutes while they charge their car. But as we develop this network further, I think we are very much looking at best practices from around the world to figure out how do we make these stations really attractive. One of our other areas of emphasis though in development of this infrastructure is really to find sites that are close to high densities of multifamily housing. Yes. <laughs> we have a lot of that's electric vehicles. That's where you need, I mean, that's that's who really needs this charging option. That That's right. That's right. We have a lot of electric vehicles in our service territory today, 40,000 in Alameda County, and that's growing quickly. Most of those electric vehicles charge at home. And we have 50% of our customers who live in multifamily who don't have access to home charging. So that's what we're really focusing on remedying in citing these projects. Yeah. But to your point, I've those amenities are important. I've been in that boat and there's, it's great to have a variety of options, but that, that fat, a nearby fast charging option is sort of critical to just having a good experience. Well, I just want to go back a little bit. You talked about time of use, pricing for for ev charging and overnight charging versus you know market signals and more more flexible market signals i mean that again as an ev owner it's it seems to me like if i just imagine i don't know if this is what you have in mind or what you're developing but if i you know if i could get a notification from my utility 
you know, whenever it is that they say, hey, if you charge at this time, your rate will be lower. I would very much love to, I would love to, you know, get those notifications, say, okay, yeah, sure, I'll charge between noon and four instead of four and eight or whatever, you know, and it seems just like a very, a better, more flexible, more fluid system if it can be implemented well, where you would get plenty of response from people who would just take the, you know, be be easy enough for them to to be flexible and take the lower rate. Is this what you have in mind? Is this what you're developing? Or is that a bit beyond what you were talking about? It, it is a bit what we're thinking, though. One of our general takeaways from our engagement with our customers is that electricity consumers, even electric vehicle drivers, don't want to spend too much time thinking about their electricity service. And yeah. so one of our areas of emphasis here is trying to streamline how we acquire customers into these programs and make it as invisible as possible or as automated as possible instead of pinging customers and telling them power is cheaper now, go down to your electric vehicle and unplug it or go into your app and, and change this. We, we are concerned that that's going to result in fairly low levels of overall participation, particularly as we move from the early adopter market of electric vehicles who tend to be very conscious of these details to mass market adoption where consumers don't want to think about these things. So with that in mind, one of the things we are really thinking about as a second step, not something we're implementing today, but as a second step is how can we partner with the vehicle OEMs or even dealerships so that you enroll customers in managed charging programs that are responsive to price at purchase of vehicle, because it is that purchase of vehicle that it is not too much to ask of a consumer to get their utility bill account number and log into their account. They're already going and pulling lots of other paperwork during the purchase. Whereas we have seen quite a bit of attrition in customer participation for managed charging after the fact. When you send somebody an email or you know, you sent, you know, there's an ad that they might see. They might say, oh, I'm interested in $50 for managed charging. But by the time they go, they go to the website and they realize they don't have their account number for their EBCE account. They just say, well, let me go look at it later. And then yep. you end up losing that customer. Yeah, we've all got piles of things we're going to get to soon. <laughs> That's been long past soon. Uh, I saw really some really funny uh, memes about that recently. But, you know, I, I totally get what you're saying, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I I would be very curious to see, you know, how these different options played out if you if you test them in different ways. Just, you know, people like to save money, you know, they like to think, oh, I'm being smart, I'm saving money. And, and while I wouldn't really want emails or, or anything complicated, if I, if I did get a notification saying, you know, like, hey, if you charge between these times, your, your rate would be lower, I'd be like feeling good about myself, like, oh, good, look, I'm being smart, I'm, I'm getting this easy easy way to save money. And I think a lot of people just like, like, like that kind of thing, you know, that, that's why, you know, sales and deals and discounts and stuff are so popular, because they're so effective. But, but I also totally get what you're saying. And, and of course, it also is easier just to say, hey, I plug in when I get home, and my, and my utility or, or my car manages it all for me and does all the work for me smartly. And, you know, you can still feel good about it. It's just, I think there's not that constant positive reinforcement of, oh, look at that. I, I saved money by plugging in at this time, you know, but yeah. 
I think there's definitely a middle ground, right? You want to create a dynamic where customers are engaging, but you need to make that engagement customer centric. And I think one of the observations we've had today is that utility systems are not designed with the customer experience in mind, typically. And so as we think about electric vehicle customers or even solar customers in the future, we really need to think about very customer centric ways of engaging with them that don't require count numbers or information that's not readily accessible. And that's something we're very focused on partnering with industry to figure out. So we'll transition to a couple other things real quick. And well, going back to the virtual power plant and your experiences and learnings from that, you know, I'm here in Southwest Florida. We're on the verge of getting hit by a hur- hurricane. It's aiming right for us. Uh, it's supposed to hit in a couple of days and could be a category three, could, could even be a category four. Of course, it's the Gulf of Mexico. It could go anywhere once uh, when, when it changes its mind. But, you know, the risk here is not the heat waves and the, and the, I mean, we, of course we have heat problems, but we don't have grid problems from heat waves and uh, we don't have grid problems from fires really. So the risk here is hurricanes. Is there anything that you can, that you think you have that you could, is being learned in California right now that would transfer to a place like Florida in the future? One of the main experiences we've observed, especially from wildfires with our public safety power shutoffs, where the grid is proactively turned off to reduce fire risk in certain areas, but certainly it's relevant in the heat event that we just experienced is customer resiliency is a growing importance. And that really means finding ways to invest intelligently in customer-sided solar and storage. And as people adopt electric vehicles, finding ways for consumers to be able to tap into the batteries, at least in emergencies, of those electric vehicles to provide on-site resiliency when the bulk power system is stressed by natural disasters that are caused by climate change. Just thinking we're going to build bigger, stronger poles to respond to ever stronger hurricanes, it's not going to work. We need to take these more customer-focused solutions. And so in California, we have very much done that. There is quite a bit of debate about the rules for, say, net metering. Yeah, that's the... I and East Bay Community (laughs) Energy have been very vocal in our belief that while some changes to net metering are merited, grid access charges, which would essentially make the economics of adopting solar for consumers not feasible, are not in the interest of the state of California, not in the interest of consumers. And so that is something that we strongly believe, that I strongly believe. And you know, I think that's something that certainly Florida has challenges around as well. There's been quite a bit of reporting about the, you know, the, the battles are over net metering with Florida Power and Light and uh, finding ways to empower consumers with solar and storage in the face of hurricanes or other natural disasters, to me, seems like one of the best solutions available to us. Yeah, we we had a recent webinar with a panel of people talking about the the Florida situation where we got lucky with a veto at the last minute, but it was a bit um, surprised everybody on, on all, all sides. So uh, we were trying to d- delve into that, but on the California situation. So that, that was the last thing I want to talk about. Just, you know, the, there was a big, there's been a movement for years to kind of, you know, it's been an effort to, to, to weaken or, or, or remove net metering. And at the beginning of the year, it looked like it was headed towards some pretty severe changes that, as you said, would, would 
create big charges for rooftop solar customers and would really uh, harm the rooftop solar industry. We just, you know, it sort of that there was enough pushback that that didn't happen. And then it seems like it's been in limbo for several months, a bit of a confusing situation. But we recently published a couple of articles about, you know, this topic and have extensive, you know, hundreds of comments of debate and sort of a central part of the debate that I saw, sort of the reasonable components of the debate, is that some people are concerned that it's 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 lower income uh, communities and, and middle middle income communities to some extent that pay the price of net metering, and that there are while there are benefits, the the cost of the of the service is being sort of shifted in a regressive way instead of progressive way. Then there's you know a lot of other arguments about how it actually lowers costs, how how these systems lower costs don't that that helps everybody, especially again could be those lower income and middle income communities. Can you speak to that part of the debate at all? Uh, say a little bit about how you think rooftop solar and, and storage with, from net metering stimulated by net metering, how it contributes to that those issues. So I believe, and I believe. So the data certainly does support the the fact that some amount of value associated with the current net metering structure represents an overcompensation to those customers relative to the value they provide. And that is why we at East Bay Community Energy are very supportive of real modifications to the way the exports from solar to the grid are compensated, aligning the exports of solar to the grid with the value they deliver to the grid. But the application of a grid access charge amounts to a pretty fundamental shift in the way we think about everything that customers do. That's a pretty strong, blatant disincentive to put <laughs> rooftop solar in and uh, l- let you know let let me give you kind of some analogs right so in the whole discussion around rooftop solar net metering we we certainly are not considering talking about energy efficiency and the investments california the billions of dollars of investments california makes in energy efficiency but when you look at the cost effectiveness of residential energy efficiency programs by and large they are not cost-effective under the same parameters that are used to judge rooftop solar cost-effective. So you could argue that the same the programs that we have to give residential consumers incentives to put more efficient HVAC in their homes also potentially create some cost shift as well from the participating customer to the non-participating customer. Yeah, that sort of flies under the radar, I think. <laughs> and you could argue that electric vehicles create some cost shift because when an electric vehicle consumer buys an EV, they are putting more strain potentially, depending on when they charge, on the grid. It is also the case that certain kinds of large consumers get a relative subsidy compared to residential consumers. My point being that Electricity rate design is embedded with many different cost shifts between different customer classes and within customer classes. And we 
provide general rate design for all customers because we think it is in the public interest to peanut butter these costs across the board. So the idea that we're going to put a grid access charge on rooftop solar is particularly troubling for me because the next step is putting a grid access charge on electric vehicles or on energy efficiency. The arguments that are made to put grid access charges on solar in California are not so different than arguments you could see made across the country for grid access charges on electric vehicle adoption. And we know from a climate perspective, from an environmental perspective, local air quality perspective, we need to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. So I think there are tools in our toolkit to deal with some of the shifting of costs from participating solar customers to non-participating solar customers that really just focus on that value of exports. And by the way, when you shift the value of exports to be associated with the value of the grid, that encourages more people to adopt batteries. That's a good thing. We want lots of batteries out there that we can control for grid optimization and carbon reduction. Finally, what I'll say is there's quite a bit of rhetoric in California in the net metering debate about who is adopting solar. And it is simply not true that today, those folks adopting solar are only the very high income. In fact, middle-income Californians are the number one adopters of rooftop solar across the state. And frankly, in a period of rising rates, significantly rising rates, giving those consumers an option to help manage their costs is really important. Yeah, I was going to, I almost asked about that, uh, that, that sort of assumption. Yeah, well, just real quickly too, you know, a lot of the the costs of pollution from whether power plants or transportation is borne by lower income communities. And, and, and that's something that, you know, I think, you know, you have a lot of great researchers in California, uh, a really thorough value of solar uh, and, and, and other things um, study would be, it seems like the most logical best path forward for reworking the, the rate system in a fair, fair way aimed at achieving all of the goals as much as possible. Just the last, last, last question would be, you know, we've seen a little bit of talk of, of community solar programs that are subsidized and help lower income communities get involved and benefit from the use of solar in, in the same way that more, you know, people who own their homes can, can do with rooftop solar. Do you, is there anything under development with you guys or that, that you're aware of that you want to comment on, on that option, that possibility? East Bay Community Energy is a community-owned public power provider. That means that our board is made up of local elected officials. Our stakeholders are all our customers. So when we think about solar development and we think about the benefits it delivers to our communities, we really think about every single megawatt of solar we acquire and build and serve our customers with is a form of community solar. It is a clean energy solution that we are bringing to our customers at a lower cost than they would otherwise get from the incumbent investor-owned utility. So we don't really think about community solar in the ways that it's being deployed in places like Minnesota or New York as really being relevant or necessary in the areas we serve, because this is core to what we do. Bringing in third-party private 
developers who would then go and acquire customers and try to deliver something we're already doing to them as a nonprofit just seems duplicative and not in the best interest of our consumers. Yeah, I was, just, I was almost a little confused about how to ask about that topic. And, and I mean, some of the stories have been down in Southern California with, with, um, within, you know, larger investor-owned uh, utility networks. But uh, that makes a lot of sense. Really useful and interesting response. And across the board, it's really been a pleasure to talk with someone who can talk in detail and get into nuances about all of these different matters and, and answer questions that those of us on the outside are asking. So, Thank you so much for your your time and your thoroughness in in uh, thinking about and discussing these matters with us today. Uh, do you have any final comments from from East Bay? My only final comment is at East Bay, we were started initially to provide clean, affordable wholesale electricity to our customers. And so the first few years, we were really focused on building large utility scale solar and wind, and we've done that very effectively. As we have matured and grown as an organization, we have now really turned our attention to customer-centric solutions, virtual power plants, electric vehicle programs, demand response, initiatives that are going to fundamentally change the way our customers use electricity to save energy, create good jobs in the communities we serve, and improve the environment. We feel like we are best positioned of anybody in the country, perhaps the world, to lead in this transition, and we are excited to do so. That's a fascinating kind of uh, explanation of your evolution, because that's sort of the debate that you often end up getting into is people arguing for cheap utility scale solar wind farms and other people arguing for, as you said, the customer centric, you know, virtual power plants, these kind of more distributed solutions. And I think what you're showing is that just a mixture of those is really what you need. That's the ideal. So thank you for what you're doing. And we'll have to check in in the future to see uh, how you progress and and what you learn in the in the coming months and years. Thank you. All right, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.